This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. It's very, very lovely to uh, be back here. For the benefit of my friend Naga Mitchell, I'd like to start the talk by saying Namo Buddhai Jai Bim. <laughs> and I'll say a little bit more about that later, what the Jai Bim means. Um, so, yes, as Vidani said, we're talking about Shanti or Kanti in Palo, Pali, um, which means patience, but also Sangharachita uh, translates it as tolerance. So I think that's partly what I'm going to be focusing on today. I must say I have written a completely different talk. Written, I must say, in my head. I haven't actually put any on paper. But in my head, I've written a completely different talk, and then Friday happened. And uh, I thought I'd just tackle it head, head on. <laughs> because it's a very relevant uh, topic for our current situation in this country. And I don't really want to get into a big debate about who voted leave and who voted remain or why. Although I think it would be a good it would have been a good debate. Had all I do did try and suggest it for the London Buddhist Centre um, to have a debate on remain or leave, but they didn't opt for that. Um, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but yes, whichever way you did vote on Friday, no Thursday, and many people voted on both sides who were not at all reactive or ignorant. Um, you know, there was a lot of consideration on both sides. Um, this is a time of change, uh, uncertainty, and even shock for our country. And people are feeling it very, very strongly. Um, I was in Birmingham, actually, at the time. And uh, I was very distressed, actually. Um, within 10 minutes of leaving the house in which I was staying, um, I had uh, been comforting a woman from Bulgaria who was um, crying and uncertain of her future. And then I walked out and went to the bus stop, and there was a whole debate at the bus stop. Um, which I must say, I thought, God, I really, really love the Brahmins, almost as much as I love people from Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a mood of anger, there's a mood of despondency, there's a mood of fear, uh, and a mood of debate. And, you know, this could be a serious, have serious economic implications for our country, uh, for Europe and indeed the world. You know, it's a very, very important decision and will have big effects. And we could be facing a, a huge economic downturn. You know, that's what people are, are up against. And in the midst of all of this, we lost against Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> and I bought a Euro Millions lottery ticket, which is what I do when I'm feeling really depressed. And I didn't win that either. <laughs> so yes, and there's a lot of uh, feeling, a lot of lack, a loss of faith uh, in politicians who, um, in this time of fear and change and uncertainty, seem to be squabbling for leadership and revoking their promises that they made before the referendum. So there's a big risk of polarisation, uh, polarisation with other nations in the European Union. Um, and with our, in, within our nation itself, um, our friends, even in the order, you know, there's quite a debate in, within the order of people uh, who voted to remain or to leave. 
And, you know, amongst Facebook, I can feel that temptation to wanting to unfriend certain people. <laughs> even, even other world members. So, you know, it's a time of great uncertainty. Um, it might be that Scotland leaves us. I don't know what's going to happen with Northern Ireland. And what I noticed in myself was it did evoke a lot of, um, sort of, it evoked some of my tendencies of what I do in stressful situations, which I do, I do experience uh, a kind of vision of the future, which is apocalyptic and bleak and terrible. And what I noticed in myself was also a lot of fear. So uh, just walking through the streets and whenever I saw a St. George's Cross, I started to feel fear and uncertainty. And within all this, we've seen over the, the past few days a rise in a very ugly form of nationalism and an increase of hate crimes, uh, particularly against Muslims and Eastern Europeans. So it seems appropriate to address this topic head on now, um, to give a talk about patience and tolerance and forgiveness. And I'm basing it very, very heavily on um, Sangrach's talk, Buddhism, World Peace and Nuclear War. So I do recommend that you... you um, either listen to it or read it. It's in this book called The Priceless Jewel, which is in our, our library, but um, it's also, this book is downloadable for free from Sangrachta's website, uh, and it's a talk. So it's written in, in this as a chapter in this book, but it's actually a talk which is available on Free Buddhist Audio. It's a very, very interesting talk. It's also very long. <laughs> <laughs> So what I'm uh, positing um, this evening is I think one of the things that's distressed me most and what I'd really like to talk about a bit is the rise of nationalism. So Sangrachter in that talk defines nationalism as an exaggerated, passionate and fanatical devotion to one's national community at the expense of all other national communities and even at the expense of all other interests and loyalties. It is a pseudo-religion an idolatrous cult that demands bloody sacrifices. And when I reread that again, I thought, ah, yes, now I can see that. I can see that rising. A pseudo-religion, an idolatrous cult that demands bloody sacrifices. And he says it makes peace impossible because it means you identify with your nation, with your nation only and disregard the needs of other nations. Um, and you potentially use violence to defend your nation and claim sovereignty over others. He says this is the, the root of all conflict, is this form of nationalism. And he distinguishes it from patriotism. He says patriotism, on the other hand, is simply love of one's country, in the sense of an attachment to and a desire to care for and protect the place which one, where one was born and grew up. And it does not exclude smaller or larger interests and loyalties, or honest pride in such things as one's history and culture. So he's not saying it's bad to love one's country. It's not uh, bad to um, have the best, your country's best interests at heart. It's not bad to really love one's own culture and history. But he says, unlike nationalism, patriotism, uh, excludes peace, whereas um, so pa nationalism excludes peace. Whereas patriotism, within patriotism, it's still possible to love our country, our city, and our people without excluding others. Um, and I think that nationalism, in this quite ugly form, is on the rise. 
when I heard about the, um, the results of the referendum, I was with a friend from India. And, um, you know, I was, I actually was in physical shock when I read the news. And after a while, he said to me, listen, it's a good thing that you wake up as a country. It's a good thing that you wake up to the fact that bad things can happen and that things don't go the way you want. I think I'd, I, as well as a lot of people, just assumed everything would go along as normal. And um, what I thought, everyone else thought, really, behind their heart of hearts, you know, they really think what I think because I'm a liberal minded white person and I just think that everyone thinks the way I do. I think it's called neo colonialism, actually. <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, when I was preparing this talk and I was in the green room, and uh, Susan was uh, over there, was reading a book called Reality Slap. <laughs> I'm not sure what that book's about, but I did feel like, well, you don't need a book about Reality Slap just at the moment. I think Friday was enough for me to have a Reality Slap. So, so far, you know, in my lifetime, we've lived in a time of peace in this country. Um, and um, a sense that at root, bad things can happen over there to them. But in our world, um, in my world, I'll be safe, whatever happens. I'm a good person. I'm basically a good person. So I deserve to be safe. And the people I know are basically good people and they deserve to be safe. So we sort of will be. It'll carry on in a, in a particular way. Um, but actually, maybe not. You know, uh, it's not only that nationalism is on the rise here, but um, we can see that nationalism is definitely on the rise in India and in other European countries in America and in Asia. And um, it's time that maybe we all woke up to the fact that bad things can happen in society. And we need to think uh, about what we want and where the future is. Um, because by its nature, if nationalism arises in one nation, it arises in another. Because you're starting to identify yourself as a nation in opposition to others, which means that they'll define themselves in opposition against you. And it was Dr. Ambedkar, so why we say Jai Bim at the beginning of the talk in India, is um, to uh, celebrate the life of um, a very, very great Buddhist of the 20th century called Dr. Ambedkar, who um, uh, transformed the lives of millions of people in India through the Dharma itself. And one of the things that he said um, is that he said uh, about partition in India, is he said, if you encourage an Islamic nationalism in Pakistan, that will encourage Hindu nationalism in India. And he was right, that did in fact happen. So if, you, if nationalism is on the rise in one place, it will occur in another. Um, and uh, that's what happens with polarisation. Polarisation divides peoples um, and drives people apart on a local, national and international level. So with this rise of polarisation, nationalism, even violence and hate crimes, how do we respond? We respond with shanti. shanti. Um, it's interesting because when you when we talk about tolerance and patience, we tend to think of that. I don't know because I was just scribbling on the flip chart, but I tend I just thought, oh, well, you tend to think of that as quite a watery word, uh, and it's quite a sort of soft word, or um, 
maybe you can think it's about being a little quiescent um, or passive, or uh, you can think about it as a kind of liberal nicety. But actually, um, the Buddha didn't talk about it in that way at all. So one of the uh, things that the Buddha said is he said, patient endurance is the best form of penance. I'm going to go into that. Bit of a, uh, not immediately accessible phrase. But what he said, yes, the patient endurance, so shanti, is the best form of penance. And it's interesting because the word he used for, which is uh, translated as penance, is actually tapatia, which means fire or heat or sun, <coughs> exertion and zeal. Um, but Sangharachita talks about it as being on fire with spiritual inspiration. So it's quite an interesting use of word because you've got on the one hand shanti, which is um, uh, about being um, patient and tolerant. Um, and then you've got also this word tapasu, which is about being on fire, heat, um, exertion, energy. It's a very, very energetic word. And it was the word given to um, the people who practiced, or the, the ascetic practices at the time of the Buddha. So at the time of the Buddha, there were many kind of wandering sects, and um, they used to practice all sorts of sort of ascetic practices in order to drive out desire, in order to find wisdom beyond their sort of physical limitations. So one of the ones that Sangharachita talks about is the five fire practice, where you'd sit in the midday sun with a fire in front, a fire behind, a fire on one side, a fire on the other side. And you just sit there until you just went beyond your own desires and cravings and preferences. And the Buddha said, well, you don't need to do that. You don't need to sit under the five fire practice to really experience um, spiritual training, if you like. He said, actually, practicing patience is enough. It's harder. I think it's actually harder to practice patience than to sit into the five fires. And he says, if you really want to gain enlightenment, um, the real fire of spiritual inspiration and practice is shanti. That's the real training that one has to undergo. And it's hard. It's tough. You've got to have a lot of inspiration. You've got to have a lot of, in a way, will and effort to do it. It's clearly not a kind of weak, um, quiescent sort of practice, but it's a real training, a training for wisdom. And if you can handle that, basically you've done it. Basically, you can gain enlightenment. So how is it a training for wisdom? I think it's a training for wisdom because to be tolerant and patient in the face of difficulty challenges our self-clinging and our main delusion, which is uh, about building a self in opposition to others. So Sangharachita talks about self-clinging as a way of operating in the world that's based on delusion. And delusion is, I'm separate from you and that my needs are the most important. He says it's a way of functioning that's tight and closed and circles around itself, circles around yourself, um, in opposition to others. And as I was rethinking uh, that understanding of sort of, you know, the primary delusion in a sense, I was thinking, actually it's very sim similar to the definition of nationalism. So I'm going to read Bhante's quote, Sangrachita's quote, about... Um, nationalism, but replace it with self-clinging and see what you think. 
Self-clinging is an exaggerated, passionate and fanatical devotion to one's own self, at the expense of all other selves, and even at the expense of all other interests and loyalties. It is a pseudo-religion, an idolatrous cult that demands bloody sacrifices. <laughs> you know, quite frankly, I kind of think, well, I'm not a nationalist, you know. I'm quite a good, liberal-minded person. But when I actually apply it to my own self-clinging, I think, actually, no, I am. <laughs> it's not really about Britain, because my family's not exactly all British anyway. Um, it's more uh, about myself. I do think there is an exaggerated, passionate and fanatical devotion to my own self. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. So with that, with that kind of self-regarding attitude, um, we create me in division, in, uh, division and divisiveness even against others. And the Buddha was quite clear about how we do that, how the kind of mechanism by which we create a self in opposition to others, which is by our likes and dislikes, our views and opinions, our roles and identity in society and our behaviour. So I think about myself. So the way I create my own identity is that uh, I like soy milk in my tea, which definitely puts me in a certain category in society. I voted to remain. Uh, I'm a liberal white woman in my 30s who's a Buddhist. And for my fun, I go on retreat. <laughs> and I live in Wales. So, you know, there's a, there's a way in which we create ourselves and our identity. And that puts me in a certain position in the world. Which is okay as far as it goes. It's a pretty nice self I've created, actually. As, as far as selves go. Um, as far as my own inner private nation goes. I'm doing pretty well. Um... But uh, it only goes so far as I can confirm and reinforce myself in what I read and in who I'm with and in what I do. So I'm in a constant process of recreating this self. And the problem is that life doesn't conform to my sort of what the Tantra calls the ego project. It doesn't conform to what I want. I can't always build myself uh, in a nice way. And other people don't conform to what I want them to do either. So I'm challenged in the fact that I don't get what I want. Um, people disagree with my views, other people disagree with my views. Um, my roles collapse in society. And there's dukkha, there's unsatisfactoriness. Life doesn't conform to my expectations and it breaks its promises. And I'm faced with the realization that things could go seriously wrong and my ego project is at stake. Um, and in fact, but that's what it was. It was just a new project. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from uh, when our sense of self-identity is challenged? Well, the first thing that we've got to do is look deeply into reality. So what does Buddhism say about reality? Um, well, if the uh, beginner's course hasn't changed... You all did this on week one. Um, so the first thing is that it says is that things are always changing. The idea of having a kind of safe world that's going to go on forever is a nonsense. Just as you think, just when you think you can hold on tightly, it just goes. There's a beautiful quote from the Buddha where he's talking about his own sort of realization of this, where he says, 
There is nothing in this world that is solid at base and not a part of it that is changeless. We cannot hold on to the way things are. A lot of the, the um, Brexit debate was about um, going back to an idea of an ideal uh, Britain at some point, UK at some point in the past. But we can't go back to that and we can't keep it as it is now. Um, life moves on, things are changing all the time. Um, even treaties don't remain the same forever. The second thing is that uh, life, uh, because it's always changing, is um, impossible to depend on. We can't depend on a changing world, it's unsatisfactory. And we can't, um, it's unsatisfactory for us, we can't hold on to our own worlds and our own kind of sense of fixed and separate selfhood. But it's also the true of other people. Uh, we all feel the pain of change. We all feel the pain of impermanence. And um, a lot of difficulty, I think, at the moment comes down to the fear of change. Um, there's people who um, are saying, well, you know, I've lived in this area all my life, but I don't know these people who are moving in next door. I don't know these people who are working with me. Um, I don't know their language. Um, I don't know their culture, I don't know their ways of behaving. Sometimes I can't even see their face. The world I thought I knew has gone. And I think when we really look at that sense of um, change and uh, that the pain of change, well, we can really appreciate what that's like, actually. We can really sort of see the difficulty of that. We all think that the world's going to be one way and it turns out to be another. Um, there's a talk by Sabuti actually where he says, well, we're all fragile egos surrounded by a sea of threat. You know, that's all of us. That's the existential human situation. It's not just one person or another person. We're all fragile egos surrounded by a sea of threat. And um, that has certain consequences. So you've looked a little at anger, but I wanted to go back to what actually happens here. Another piece of paper. So there's this cycle that happens when we experience dukkha or unsatisfactoriness or even disappointments. You know, life does break its, break its promises. It is disappointing on all sorts of levels. Um, actually, that's what my brothers used to say when something goes wrong. They just kind of look in that really English dry way. They just say, ah, disappointing. England lost against Iceland. Disappointing. <laughs> anyway, so yes, dukkha, unsatisfactory. So, dependence upon dukkha or unsatisfactoriness arises frustration. And um, if we dwell on that frustration uh, and don't check it in time, it can lead to anger. Energy arises with that frustration and it leads to a certain anger. And anger needs an outlet, it needs a way of kind of, it's a very energetic kind of mental state and it needs an outlet in the world. So what it tends to do is it looks for blame. Um, Sangra actually calls this the quota of negativity that just looks to attach itself onto an object. I sometimes call it the leech of blame. You know, leeches just wait for a heat source to come by. And... Um, then a heat source comes by and then they just attach themselves to it and feed and grow. So I think there's in all of us just a leech of blame. You know, things aren't going so well, so we're going to blame someone or other. 
And when we find an object for our anger, it becomes hatred. It becomes hatred of other, which again, if it really starts feeding, can turn into rage, uh, which can fix itself to an ideology. Uh, and then the cycle is repeated. So basically that's what's happening a lot in our minds um, uh, all the time to a greater or lesser extent. And if we're going to practice shanti or patience or tolerance, we need to go back to just dukkha. I think that's really what the practice is. Instead of letting it go into a kind of sense of frustration, anger, blame, hatred and rage and an ideologies, is to go back to that fundamental dukkha and really take on that this is the way the world is. Um, there's a wonderful section in the Samyutta Nikaya, which is a, a book of the teachings of the Buddha, where he talks about the fact that samsara, or existence, has no discoverable beginning. That endlessly um, beings are born and reborn, the cycle of existence goes on and on and on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. And you can't ever find a beginning for it. You can never find a beginning for it. And he said, what do you think is more, the tears that we've shed uh, in this long journey or the water in the river Ganges? Well, of course, it's the tears that we've shed on this long journey, again and again, repeated births, uh, again and again, anger, frustration, dukkha. So we need to go back to this sense of, like, actually, that is the way it is. Uh, that thing, life breaks its promise. And um, we have to experience dukkha. Uh, this side of enlightenment, anyway. <coughs> so yes, it's unsatisfactory, it's disappointing, because our expectations are always out of line with reality. Um, and either we can change reality itself, or we'll have to learn to change our expectations. And sometimes I think with forgiveness, we have to forgive life itself. It's not that we have to forgive one person or another person, but actually life itself, which is always changing. And it's also devoid of a fixed inherent selfhood. So this is the third thing that we have to look at in reality, that uh, none of us are um, separate from another. We're not isolated, we're not fixed, we're not um, little egos <coughs> just in opposition to other. We're profoundly affecting each other all the time. And other people's actions impact on us and our actions impact on them. In fact, there are no us or others. We're completely conditioned and we're conditioning all the time. In fact, we are each other. And never is this more evident now, because the terrifying prospect of um, Friday's news is that our vote impacts not only on our own nation, but in Europe itself and indeed the world. We cannot carve ourselves out of the world. Um, and that's what's so hard about the decision about whether we leave the EU or not. The debate focused, and I did notice this, the debate focused on a lot of the little issues um, what's best for me, my family, my bank account, um, my nation? But never was it questioned what's best for Europe as a whole or even for the world. 
Um, and nor was it debated on how our current situation in the UK is dependent on other worldwide forces. You know, it was a sense of dissatisfaction, blame Europe. But the world was watching and the world will have its response. I'm afraid I've got a little image at the moment of Putin licking his lips at the moment, ready to pounce. You know, our decision was not made in isolation and it will have a bigger impact than we can possibly foresee. That's the way the world is, it's conditioned and um, conditioning. And when Sangrachta talks about world peace, he says, peace has become a seamless garment and the world it has either to wear the whole garment or go naked to destruction. There can no longer be any question of a scrap of peace covering one part of the world nakedness and not another. He says this makes it impossible for us to think in mere, merely geopolitical terms. We have also to think in geoethical, geo-humanitarian or geo-philanthropic terms. Since peace is indivisible, so that the stark choice before us is either world peace or no peace, one world or no world. We shall be able to achieve peace only if we realise that humanity too is indivisible and if we consistently act on that realisation. In other words, we shall be able to achieve peace only by regarding ourselves as citizens of the world and learning to think not in terms of what is good for this or that nation state, this or that political system, this or that ideology, but simply and solely in terms of what is good for the world or for humanity as a whole. Well, that's quite a challenge to think of what's good for the humanity as a whole and not just our nation state, not just even ourselves and our families. And it's also the answer to our difficulties because um, if we act together in communities, locally and globally as citizens of the world and identifies ourselves with others beyond ourselves and our nation, we really could make a difference. But I think the current mood is that we have to act together. We can't act as isolated individuals. Um, and we have to see that there is change, there is dukkha, there isn't such a thing as an isolate, uh, isolated act or individual nation. And when we really see this, when we really see how connected we are to others, how their problems in a sense are our own problems, how when we see that there is just change, there is different or unsatisfactoriness, we can learn to step back and soften and be open to others and to really listen to others and um, be able to communicate from them, from a, uh, with them from a deeper level. When I was looking up the word shanti uh, in the dictionary, Kanti actually, I looked it up in Pali. Um, it said in the dictionary that this word is most usually found with metta and also bala or strength. That's very interesting that in a way you can't take it away from uh, the force of loving kindness, but also strength itself, the strength of patience, the strength of tolerance. So if we can come from this state of mind that really looks deeply into the way things are and has a kind of resonance with other human beings and the sort of uh, situation that we're all in just as fellow human beings, as citizens of the world, um, then we'll be able to act in a more profound and useful way. 
So this is where I'm really going to bring in um, Sangharaj's talk on Buddhism, world peace and nuclear war. If we come from this sense of uh, shanti or plenty, if we come from patience and tolerance, we'll find the strength to act. Um, we'll find that quality of tapasya or heat or spiritual inspiration. And he says that um, if we can do this, we can, uh, we can take very practical steps, which I'll go through in a minute. Actually, we did some study on um, Saturday about this word tapasya and spiritual inspiration and about the Buddha's advice to a young man called Dotaka. And he advised Dotaka to practice tapasya or fire, but also <coughs> intelligence and awareness. I think it takes intelligence and awareness to practice kanti or tolerance. And um, I think if we can practice intelligence and awareness, then we can also uh, live our lives from a different kind of fire, a different kind of action. So uh, Sankarachita's first piece of advice was to put pressure on people, first of all, on yourself. So it's interesting that a Buddhist, from a modern Buddhist thinker, should talk so much about putting pressure on people. But anyway, there we go. You might not see it as a particularly Buddhist quality, but... I think it is. So he says, first of all, put pressure on yourself. And um, he was saying we need people to take a lead in society. We need people who practice patience, but we also need people who are on fire with spiritual inspiration. We need people who can become an example to others. So I think what we could all do is think, um, what example to others do I want to be? What example do I want to set for others? Um, what values do I want to embody and what values do I want to communicate? Um, Sangraj has said in his talk, it has to be an example of impartiality and detachment, an example of love for humanity as a whole, an example of genuine devotion to the achievement of world peace by non-violent means. It has to be an example of, of a sanity and compassion which though it may fall very far short of the sanity and compassion of enlightenment, is yet more nearly commensurate to the strength of the opposing forces between which we stand and with which we have to deal than is at present the case. So we've got to embody those values, the values of sanity and compassion, impartiality and detachment, love for humanity as a whole. And who else is it up to? It's certainly not up to the politicians at the moment. I think it has to come down to us, what we do both individually and collectively. I'm very pleased that Machidas was talking about the uh, summer fair and the example that we show, could show to others at that time. We can show that actually we can all come together on the basis of different faiths, different nationalities, and just have a good time and eat cake and um, buy some cheap and work together, actually. I think that's my favourite thing about some of those, just uh, working together and watching people work together. Uh, I don't think it's the time when we can really start hiding and hiding who we are and hiding what we believe. We're going to have to stand up and stand out and um, enter into conversation and embody what we want to become and take responsibility for ourselves and for what we're communicating. Um, going back to on Dr. Ambeka, 
who's a real example of someone who transforms society on the basis of the Buddha Dharma. He thought, said to his followers that you hug your own helplessness as an inevitability. And I do like that expression, you hug your own helplessness. And I wonder of myself, how often do I just hug my own helplessness? You know, on Friday I was pretty depressed. How, how much did I just see that as inevitable and go down the path of doom and the apocalypse uh, and my usual sort of apocalyptic vision? Actually, it's not enough. I was sort of telling myself in my meditation uh, after, after Friday, I couldn't meditate after Friday, I was just too depressed. Anyway, after Friday when I didn't meditate, I was just telling myself, Badger, sorry, it's not good enough. It's not good enough to just feel despondent and miserable. Actually, you're going to have to go and stand out there as an example of sanity and compassion. And to do that, of course, we need to train ourselves. How can we embody those values if we're not trained? And take advantage of any training that's being offered. So um, what I do now is I work at Tiranna Local, which is where we train women um, in Europe. I'm not sure how long it will last, but theoretically in Europe, um, for ordination. Um, and I also support those who do the same work in India through a charity called the India Dharma Trust. Because I believe that actually what the ordination process does is train men and women to be examples of sanity and compassion in the world. So I think if you really do want to train yourself to be an example of sanity and compassion in the world, I recommend that you ask for ordination. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll train you if you're a woman. But if you're a man... <laughs> so yeah, so the first thing is to put pressure on yourself. The second thing is to put pressure on your friends, colleagues, and people that you know, even your families. I remember in the part of the debate, actually, there was this big kind of post that went up on Facebook that said, phone your parents. <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because the English don't like to do political debates. We like to make our private political decisions. Um, but maybe we shouldn't be afraid to debate. Actually, in the London Buddhist Centre, they've had a lot more kind of debates going on. Um, they had a, a hustings uh, in the general election, had one at the centre. I think that we could do that here. I think it would be good to have a bit more debate. I mean, I suspect we all might come down <laughs> quite heavily on one side rather than the other. But um, I think it's good to be able to really think about issues and communicate them. It's not the time to keep quiet about what you value. I think it's a good thing to go into a workplace and say, I'm, I'm a Buddhist, or I'm interested in Buddhism, or I'm learning to meditate, I'm studying about the Buddha Dharma, even if you haven't quite decided that you want to become a Buddhist. But really bring that in to um, conversation in ordinary society. I do. I've just made a practice of it now. And um, it's quite interesting, the kind of discussions that you, that you can have. And uh, Sangharachita asks, um, recommends that we help people develop a more positive attitude to other communities and to other nations. Tell people what you know about the world. Um, encourage people to think clearly themselves um, and about other people. Um, have debate, have conversations, enter into something with kindness and with non-reactivity and with creativity. Sangharachita says, knowledge will lead to understanding understanding to sympathy, and sympathy to love. So I think we have to be um, much braver about entering into discussion. 
And that requires patience. Sometimes it requires many years of patient endurance, many years of listening and asking questions. It's not like you're just going to tell someone how it is and then they've got to agree with you. That's not how conversations work. Conversations are really about what Sangrach calls a vital mutual responsiveness. So we've all got to listen and we've all got to sit with those uncomfortable views that other people express and the fact that they don't always agree with us. Um, sometimes it means that we have to get to the emotional root behind their views. One of the crowning insights of Buddhism is that views are based on emotion. Uh, and often you have to get to the emotion, often it's dukkha, you have to get to the dukkha behind what people are saying in order to really understand why they're saying what they're saying. So we have to enter into those kind of debates, not be afraid to challenge each other and to question each other and um, to let go of even quite strongly held views. The other thing that Sangharachita recommends is to teach the Metta Bhavna on a nationwide scale. I'm not sure quite what this would involve, but I like it. Sort of, it's a bit like the kind of sign of evolution. Um, and he says that if we taught the Metta Bhavna on a nationwide scale, even if we could change government outlook. So if anyone... Uh, has an idea on how to do that. Well, let's just offer it. Let's just keep keep training people in the metabarban. I think the mindful, it's interesting because the mindfulness thing has gone really big. The mind, people in the government are even learning how to practice mindfulness. I don't think it's enough. And it's interesting that Sangharachita would say metabarban, you know, to practice meta towards even people you don't like. That's what we need in society. And that's what we need even on the government level. So the next thing he says is to put pressure on governments. He says you sh uh, to petition, to write to your MP, uh, and to demonstrate. And he says, and this is where I'm totally going to hide behind Sangrasha. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be recorded and then the revolution will start and I'll be put in prison first. Anyway, um, if the government remains unresponsive to those wishes, or not sufficiently responsive, and if the situation is one of extreme urgency, where every day is precious, then more serious measures should be taken and pressure brought to bear on the government by means of mass civil disobedience. <laughs> so there you go. The revolution started here in Sheffield, the Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire. <laughs> yeah, I was thoroughly on English, but anyway, maybe you can do it. I think one of the things that I would add uh, to what Bhante is saying, what Sangrach is saying about putting pressure on people, is that actually I think that pressure has to come from the community. I don't think we can act in isolation from one another. And if we really want to make a positive change in society, it has to come from a sense of community um, with one another. So um, just to conclude, I just wanted to read out actually um, something that the, the end of the talk. It's a bit of a long quote, but I just really wanted to read it anyway because I think it's very beautiful and quite profound. He says, in order to achieve peace, world peace, in this fuller sense, we shall have to deepen our realisation of the indivisibility of humanity and act on that realisation with even greater consistency. We shall have to regard ourselves as citizens of the world in a more concrete sense than before, and rid ourselves of even the faintest vestige of nationalism. 
we shall have to identify ourselves more closely with all living things and love them with a more ardent and selfless love. We shall have to be a louder and clearer voice of sanity and compassion in the world. We shall also have to bring to bear on the governments and peoples of the world and on ourselves the same kind of pressure that was required for the abolition of nuclear weapons, but to an even greater extent. Above all, we shall have to intensify our commitment to the great ethical and spiritual principle of non-violence, both in respect to relations between individuals and in respect to relations between groups. Ever since the dawn of history, perhaps from the very beginning of the present cosmic cycle itself, Two great principles have been at work in the world, the principles of violence and the principles of non-violence, or as we may also call it, the principle of love. Though love in the sense of, oh, I didn't use the seed, agape, 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 thank you. I don't actually know what that means, but I need to watch that later. Good. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? Meta. Meta, okay, good. Let's just say that then. Though love and sense of meta. <laughs> the principle of violence finds expression in force and fraud, as well as in such things as oppression, exploitation, intimidation, and blackmail. The principle of nonviolence finds expression in friendliness and openness, as well as such things as gentleness and helpfulness, and the giving of encouragement, sympathy, and appreciation. The principle of violence is reactive and ultimately destructive. The principle of non-violence is creative. The principle of violence is a principle of darkness. And the principle of non-violence is a principle of light. So I think that's the kind of task that we have ahead of us. It's a very uncertain time in many, many ways. Uh, there's Brexit, but there's also the fact that the world is dependent on finite resources. And we're using them up at an unprecedented rate and not finding any alternatives. Um, and this is having an unprecedented cost to other people and the environment. Um, we can't go on really in the way that we've been going on so far. And in that uncertain world, we have to really decide what we want to embody. And if we want to um, act in the principle of love and light and non-violence, in a funny kind of way, we have to fight for that. It's not enough to just believe it. We also have to vocalise it. We have to use that principle of non-violence as a pressure, as a, a force, as a spiritual inspiration, as a fire even, a fire on ourselves and on um, the people that we know and even on governments. It's not enough to just stand quietly by if we really believe in love. And we also have to trust that Buddhism can be an active force for good in the world. Shanti can become fire. Um, there's a very interesting letter, actually, that Dr. Ambedkar wrote to Sangharashtra. And he said that Buddhism sh sh Buddhists should be in the first rank of the fighting forces. And it's interesting, because at that time, um, Sangharashtra was uh, running a young men's Buddhist association in Kalimpong. And Dr. Ambedkar said, well, it's very good that you're running a young men's Buddhist association in Kalimpong, but really you should be doing much more than that. Sometimes I imagine Dr. Ambedkar in my head and think what he might say to me, that's very good that you're, you know, helping people train for ordination, but you must be doing much more than that. Well, we all must, as a, a collective society and as a sangha. So I just wanted also to completely end with um, a quote 
from the Dharmapada that Sangharachi uses to finish his talk on Buddhism, world peace and mutual award. Happy indeed we live, friendly amid the haters. Among those who hate, we dwell free from hate. Happy indeed we live, content among the greedy. Among those who are greedy, we dwell free from greed. Victory begets hatred, for the defeated one experiences suffering. The tranquil one experiences happiness, giving up both victory and defeat. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 